Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. I have been to church this morning. Woo, man. I think we could just give the benediction and go home. So very good. And uh, a great, great morning, great morning. Uh, great Saturday night too, right? I mean, I'm thinking it was really a great Saturday night. Some of you are uh, really happy and some of you are uh, despairing. But uh, anyway, so good to be with you. Thanks for braving the uh, rain outside and making it here. I'm, I'm curious. Let's take an inventory. How many of you have some kind or some piece of exercise equipment at home? Some piece of exercise? Yeah, uh, most, a lot of people, majority of the people. All right, how many have several pieces of exercise equipment at home? Yeah, okay. All right. And like uh, treadmill, Stairmaster, stationary bicycle, step machine, jump rope. Home gym, Bowflex, Peloton, Nordstrack, free weights, rowing machine, dumbbells, kettlebell, resistant bands. And what about ab equipment to get that six-pack? You know, the ab, uh, ab rocker, ab wheel, Swiss ball. Anybody still got a thigh master? <laughs> Nobody's raising their hand, but I, I think Susan, Suzanne Summer would be disappointed in that. You, you, you got to be my age to know what that means. Anyway. About two years ago, we expanded our walk-in attic up here, upstairs, and I converted a big space into a home gym, and I'm really proud of the space. Uh, Karen saw the picture and said, that must be an old picture, because it's not that neat anymore. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, pretty cool. I, I, I really, really like that. Uh, spent a lot of time putting that together. But um, anyway, um, how many people have exercise equipment that you don't use? <laughs> yeah, just about as many as... Uh, said they had equipment. It's interesting. I mean, I mean at some time, uh, someone or something convinced us we needed to exercise on a regular basis, and we, uh, we purchased the equipment, and we used it for a while, and then over time, we just kind of quit using it. And then a little later, we saw an ad or an infomercial for some other kind of uh, exercise machine, and, and we did the same thing. We bought it, and we really didn't use it. And I think we would all agree that just buying exercise equipment and owning exercise machines and gym memberships, that doesn't keep us physically fit. That, that's really not that hard to understand. If you don't use it, it won't do you any good. If you don't use it, it's, it's, it's really useless, isn't it? N not hard to understand. And if Karen were in this service, she would raise her hand and she'd say, yeah, you built that thing two years ago and you're really proud of it but you've probably only been in it to exercise five times. Yeah. Now, I know you're thinking, well, how do you get a body like this if you don't exercise? <laughs> but uh, it's, it's just genes. It's just genes and DNA and that kind of thing. In a similar way, James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us that faith, if it's going to do us or anybody else any good, it has to be Put into action to make a difference in your life. So if you're not already there, take your Bible, uh, paper or digital, and find your way to James chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to look at, at a passage uh, almost in the middle of the book of James. And the passage sets forth James' main theme. It's the big idea for the book. It's the theological center of what James is teaching us and it's absolutely essential that we understand what James is saying here. 
And to interpret it correctly, we have to understand what James is teaching us in the context of what James has already taught us in this book. Because this passage, in my opinion, has been and continues to be misinterpreted by many, many Christians. And my biggest challenge this morning is, not only do I have to interpret the passage for you, I've got to uninterpret the passage for many of you, because what I'm going to teach this morning may sound a little bit different than what you have heard in the past. But it's not unique to me, by the way. Now, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 this is one of the most difficult passage to, passages to understand in all the Bible. And since the Protestant Reformation, there's been no agreement in the church as to what the passage actually means, uh, especially verses 18 through 20. But as far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most important teachings in the Bible because it helps us understand the vital connection between faith and works. And that's something that grace-based people get foggy about from time to time. And to make matters worse, many preachers have used this passage to say exactly the opposite of what I understand James to be saying. And so if you find this a bit challenging or different from what you've heard before, I just encourage you to go home, read it for yourself, uh, study it, and, and, and don't go to your, be your favorite commentary. Just read it and study it and think it through for yourself. Look at the context. You need to let James speak for himself and not bring to the text preconceived ideas about faith and works. So I'm asking you to listen with an open mind as James makes his point very clear. This is going to be Bible study this morning, all right? Here's what James is teaching, and it's something that I've said just about in every message so far. He's about to say... You may believe all the right stuff. You may have prayed the right prayer. You may have been baptized at the right time in the right way. You may attend church almost every Sunday and read your Bible and even lead a Bible study. You may have all your doctrinal I's dotted and your T's crossed. You may even have saving faith and possess eternal life. But if your faith doesn't express itself in visible, tangible actions, then for all Intents and purposes, it's useless, as useless as a home gym that you don't use. He's saying unless you apply your faith in the trials and troubles of life, unless, you're, unless you are exercising your faith, it's not going to do you or anyone else any good because faith separated from application is worthless, useless, dead. That's the big idea of the passage, and James says it. In unmistakable language, in verse 17, he says, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. In verse 20, he says, faith without works is useless. In verse 26, he says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So the issue is, and don't miss this, because if you start down the wrong road, you'll arrive at the wrong conclusion. The issue that James is concerned with is a faith that works. A faith that works. Now hear me, he's not talking about eternal salvation. He's not talking about going to heaven when you die. James is calling people who he believes are genuine believers, he's calling them to put their faith into action. And that's what he's been saying up to this point. Let me just do a little quick review of some of the things he said so far. If you're keeping up with us in our study of James, you know that as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James is concerned about the apparent disconnect between what his readers say they believe 
and how they're actually living. He's not questioning whether they're real Christians or not, and that's clear from the way he dresses them. Addresses them. He considers them to be genuine believers. He calls them my brothers in verse 1 and 14, my beloved brothers in verse 5. And back in verse 1, he's talking about hold your faith in Jesus like this. And he goes on to explain what he means by that. And he carries that on through the book. So he's not questioning their eternal destiny. He's not questioning the genuineness of their faith. He's calling them to live out their faith in difficult times. And he builds on this idea of living out your faith in chapter 1, verses 19 through 25, where he encourages his readers not to, to, to not just hear the word, but to do the word. In the midst of trials and troubles, do what God has told you to do. So again, the emphasis is on living out your faith demonstrating your faith by what you do. Because in a very real sense, it's not what you believe that shapes your life. It's what you do with what you believe that shapes your life. And we need to hear this, especially when we go through times when we're tempted to doubt God, when we don't understand why God has allowed painful things to come into our lives. We need to be told, put your faith into action in this, in this situation, in this circumstance. Because the truth is, sometimes trials bring out the worst in us. I mean, isn't that true? I know it's true because there are times when I'm under pressure. Sometimes I don't care what's right. When I'm hurt, I don't always care what God says. I want relief. Sometimes my little pity party feels pretty good. And if you stay there too long, you can find yourself in real trouble. The fact is, anytime you don't respond to God in faith, you lose. Anytime you make excuses for not doing what God tells you to do, you lose. You lose the blessing of experiencing God in your life. And James knows that. And evidently, he's heard how these Christians whom he dearly loves have been, have been caving under pressure and giving in to temptation. And he's calling them out. He's calling them out for hearing good sermons but not applying what they're hearing. He's rebuking them for shooting their mouths off in anger and withholding mercy by ignoring the poor and showing favoritism to rich people who they, who they hope will help them. And James, he shoots straight with them because he knows that God has great blessing in store for those who learn to endure tough times. Jason did a great job unpacking this a couple of weeks back. Uh, look at chapter 1, verse 12. James says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast in the trial. How do you remain steadfast in the trial? You put your faith into action. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown, which is life. Uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 25, James says, if you learn to express your faith in visible, observable, tangible ways, you will be blessed in what you do. So James tells us that a living, active faith results in a blessed life, by, by which he doesn't mean a, a pain-free life or a problem-free life or a pressure-filled life, because he's told us that God uses difficulties and pressure to make us stronger, to make us mature, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, more like Jesus. But God uses tough times to ultimately bless us. He wants to use those times to bless us 
and, the, and, and a blessed life is a life that experiences God on a soul level, deep in the core of who we are. We experience his peace and his joy. And that's what James means by blessing, the blessing of experiencing God and knowing him and the life that Jesus died to make possible. So James is saying, but you can only have the blessed life by putting your faith into action. Now, with that background, look at verse 14. This verse right here makes this point. And he does this by asking this question. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? That's the point. What practical, useful, day-to-day good comes from saying you have faith but then not exercising your faith? And the implied answer is, this side of heaven, an inactive faith is no good to us. It's, again, it's about as useful as having a home gym and never using it. And when James talks about works, now we're going to define four, work, four words in this passage that James takes differently than Paul. And in the sermon notes, I have defined all of these in, in kind of like one place so you can read them all together. So I really encourage you to go home and, and look at the sermon notes. But these four words that James uses are very important for us to understand because if you don't understand them correctly, then you're going to have Martin Luther's problem, and that is he can't make James and Paul reconcile. So when James talks about work, he's not using the word the way the Apostle Paul normally uses the word. For Paul, works means works of the law, works done to merit favor with God. For Paul, works means obeying rules and rituals and religious ceremonies, thinking that keeping the law will earn you salvation. That is not how James talks about works. When James talks about works, he means works of love, doing the right thing, making right choices, wise choices to show our love uh, and commitment to God, showing mercy to the poor and the needy and the press, oppressed, which we looked at last week, and we're going to see he brings it up again this week. So James begins by asking, what good is it to say you have faith but not apply it? Verse 14 again, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Now here, here, here it is. Can that faith save him? The question is, save from what? Again, saved is another word we need to define correctly because this is where we can end up missing the point of the passage. Whenever most Christians see or hear the word saved, we immediately think saved from hell, saved from judgment, saved eternally, saved from our sins so we can go to heaven when we die. And that is a a good use of the word saved. There are contexts where that's the meaning of the word. So if somebody comes up and asks, uh, are you saved? We think, yes, I put my faith in Jesus and I'm going to heaven when I die. I'm saved. That's a, that's a, it's a legitimate use of the word. But if you had walked up to someone in the first century and asked, are you saved? They would say, saved from what? Because in other words, there's no inherent theological meaning to this word. Saved was just a word, like the word dozen. A dozen what? a dozen eggs, a dozen donuts, a dozen roses. And James uses the word save five times in this letter, and all five times he never means save from hell. 
James uses the word the way we use the word all the time, like, man, that guy saved the game. Wow, that conference saved my marriage. That deal saved my job. We use a word like that to describe something that preserves something important to us or uh, keeps something bad from happening to us. That's how James uses the word. So here's the first thing that James says. It all comes with this verse 14, and that is an unapplied faith doesn't do you any good. An unapplied faith doesn't do you any good. Man, think about it. Can a husband who believes all the right things and reads his Bible every day, if that man doesn't apply what he reads in Scripture and he hears in sermons and in podcasts or whatever, if he doesn't apply Scripture to his marriage, will that faith save him? Will that faith save him from being deceived when he's tempted to go astray? Will a family who sits on the same row together in worship, who sincerely believes that Jesus is the only way to God, only way to heaven, but Monday through Saturday they apply little to nothing of what they hear in church, will that faith save their family? Will it preserve the relationships if that faith is not put into tangible actions? You see in this, the question is, can unapplied faith save you? Can it save you financially? Can it save you from, uh, can it save your reputation? And the answer is no. God will not save you or preserve you or protect you from the consequences, the negative consequences of you not doing what he tells you to do. I mean, he may even discipline you as a result of that. I, I tell you, this is so important because behind the question, can that faith save him, is a loving heavenly father who is saying, I want you to experience the abundant life that Jesus died to make possible. I want you to experience that life to the full. I want to save you not just from hell. I want to save you right here, right now. I want to preserve you and protect you through the trials of life. I want to preserve you and protect you from the negative consequences of sin right now. I want to save you deep down in the core of your being on a soul level. I want to save you from living in misery and worry and anxiety and guilt and fear. I want you to experience the truly blessed life now. But I can't give you that life, he says, if you don't trust me. If you don't put into action what I tell you to do. So James asks, can unapplied faith preserve you? Can it protect you? Through the trials and troubles of life, can unexpressed faith rescue you from the negative consequences of sin? And the answer is no. No, it can't. And yet many of us, because of the way we were raised, somehow we seem to take comfort in the fact that just because we're saved and we're going to heaven when we die, for some reason we think that somehow life is going to be better for us just because we're Christians. And James says, no, it doesn't work that way. You're deceived. You're deluded. He says it's the application of your faith that preserves you, that saves you in the here and now. It's the application of your faith that preserves your marriage, that preserves your relationships, that preserves your reputation, that saves you from the consequences of lying and cheating and wandering eyes and living a proud, stubborn, selfish life. And to think that somehow just because I'm a Christian, because I prayed the prayer 
to think that somehow all I need to do to experience the blessing of God now is just believe. James says, you need to wake up. The only way that you're gonna experience the saving blessings of God in your life right here, right now, is if you apply your faith in every area of your life because an unapplied faith, an unexpressed faith, doesn't do you any good this side of heaven. The second point James is making is that an unapplied faith doesn't do anybody else any good. And this is what he's gonna talk about from, from verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. In verse 15, he makes a, the practical nature of what he's saying, in my opinion, unmistakably clear. He says, what good is it, verse 15, what good is it if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, shalom, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, but you don't give them the things that they need for their body. What good is that? You see how practical this is? This ties back to the whole idea of the rich man and poor man that he talked about at the, in the, at the beginning of the chapter. James says, if after church, let's say a man and his wife walk up to you and, and he says, man, you won't believe what happened to me last week. I, I, I lost my job and, um, and we got bills stacked up that we can't pay and my refrigerator is emf- empty. And I mean, we, we just need some money for groceries. You, you think you could help us or find, find somebody that can help us? And as they tell the story, you, you, you tear up. And I mean, you're like, oh man, I, I am so sorry to hear that. And clearly, you believe they're in desperate need. So what do you do? Well, what you do is you say, hey, uh, Mike, uh, uh, Rob, come over here and, and, and we're gonna pray for you, brother. And we need to pray for you right now. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would bless brother and sister so-and-so, and we pray you would help them and supply all of their needs, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and then you look at them and say, hey, come back next week and tell us how you're doing. That's what he's saying. What good is faith like that? What use is it? And the answer is, it's useless, it's dead. Verse 17, look at this, so also... In other words, just like the example I just gave you about not helping a poor person, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't work, is dead. Now, dead is another word we have to understand. Simply put, dead faith does not mean no faith. Dead faith doesn't mean that faith never existed. Like um, um, when I was a kid, my parents bought me a goldfish from Woolworth's department store. It was a uh, single goldfish in a small round bowl. Really wasn't decorated all that much. It pretty much looked like that picture uh, right there. And I love my goldfish, and I named him Sushi. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. I mean, in the 60s, we didn't even know about Sushi. sushi. We just called, called it bait. And... I think his name was Bubbles. Anyway, I fed him every day, cleaned the scum off the sides of his bowl uh, every week, and, and that goldfish brought me a whole lot of joy, and I loved that fish until one morning I woke up and I saw this. <laughs> and my dad said, well, that's the way it goes, son. If you have a pet, all pets eventually die, which made me feel a whole lot better, come, you know, now as I'm looking back. Thanks, Dad. 
Does that mean I'm going to die? Does that mean grandma's going to die? Yeah, I mean, I, anyway. <laughs> I didn't want to get rid of bubbles right away. Uh, uh, so they, they let me keep the fish for another day or two uh, uh, until his eyes turned milky and um, scales were coming off and dropping on the bottom of the bowl. But, and then, uh, of course, eventually we had the funeral service and buried him in the official fish cemetery. Now, why am I telling you this? When Bubbles died, when I told my friend Mike McDonald that my fish was dead, did I mean I never had a fish? Did I mean that Bubbles never existed? Of course not. A dead fish is a lifeless fish. A dead fish is no, is a, no good to me. A dead fish is useless because there's no life in a dead fish, that's what James is saying. Dead fish, dead faith, same thing. A dead faith does not mean there isn't genuine faith in Jesus. A dead faith doesn't mean that there was never faith to start with. A dead faith doesn't mean non-existent faith. For James, a dead faith is a lifeless faith, an, 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 an inactive faith, an unapplied faith. A, a dead faith, it doesn't do you or anybody else any good, just like a dead fish doesn't do you or anybody else any good unless you use it for bait. <laughs> dead fish, dead faith, same thing. Faith without works is lifeless. It's useless. It's dead. Now, James is really saying that there are two kinds of faith, but he's not talking about real faith and fake faith. Now, I grew up thinking there is fake faith, like like if you're not doing certain things and if you're not acting in certain ways or if, you're, if you have certain habits or if you're committing certain kinds of sins then you don't have real faith, then you have fake faith. Now, could that be true? Of course it can be true. That might actually be true. But that's not what James is talking about here. He's not questioning if his friends had real faith or not. He's saying for a genuine believer... There are two kinds of faith, not real faith and fake faith. For a genuine believer, there's living faith and dead faith, an active faith or an inactive faith. Every genuine believer has faith. The question is, do you have active faith or inactive faith? The question is, what are you doing with your faith? And for James, this is absolutely essential because, again, an unapplied faith won't do you or anybody else any good. Now, I've been a pastor for close to 40 years, and I can tell you that most people I talk to who ruin their lives are Christians. And they say, I just don't understand it. I grew up in the church. I trusted Jesus as my Savior when I was young. I, I, I know I'm going to heaven when I die, but how could this happen to me? How could I screw up my life like this? And, and, and sadly, it's because when faith isn't coupled with faithful actions, it's useless because an unexpressed faith, an unapplied faith, won't save you from the heartaches and headaches and misery and guilt and inner turmoil that comes from ignoring what God has to say and going your own way. Are you seeing this? This is so important that believers understand what James is calling us to. Okay, now, to understand what James says next, 
and this is, very, is a very difficult section. I think this is one of the most difficult sections to interpret in all the Bible, but to understand it, you gotta get into James' mind, and how do we get it in his mind? We look at the context, and we look at everything he's told us so far. James is a smart man, and like any good preacher or pastor, he knows, mm, he can anticipate what his readers are thinking. He knows what some of his readers might be wrestling with, and so here, in verses 18 through 20, James poses a question, a hypothetical objection that he knows that some people are thinking. He sets up this imaginary argument with someone who objects to what he's been saying about faith needing to be expressed in practical actions. And as I've said, James has been getting very personal and practical. He's been getting in their faces telling these people to control their tongues and to control their anger and telling them to take care of widows and orphans and poor people. And he says, if your faith doesn't express itself in these kinds of tangible actions, your religion is basically worthless. Whew. And he really gets on them for how in their worship services they've been showing favoritism towards rich people and treating poor people as worthless. And somebody objects. And here's what they're saying. I'm going to paraphrase this, and then I'm going to read the verse, okay? Because the verse, well, you'll see. Um, James says, okay, I mean, uh, the objector says, okay, James, I, so let me get this straight. What you're saying is, if I believe A, then I have to do B. If I believe in one God, and if I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're saying, I got to do this, and I shouldn't do that. You're saying, I've got to do certain things to show my faith, but James, I got my own relationship with God. I have faith, and I don't need you or anybody else to tell me what I need to do or not do. Don't tell me I have to be morally pure. Don't tell me how to spend my money. Don't tell me when it's okay for me to get angry. Don't tell me who I can be friends with and who I have to love and care for. I have faith. But my faith does not have to work itself out the way you say it does. I'm not buying it. As far as I'm concerned, there's no direct connection between faith and works. You follow? Again, verses 18 through 20, this is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all the Bible. But to me, this simple explanation works in context. The objection is, let me, do it, let me say it this way. Somebody might say, this guy over here has faith. That guy over there has works. Faith works. Faith doesn't necessarily have to do the works you say. I can, and I might do works over here, but there's no necessary connection between faith and works. Faith and works are two separate categories. They're not necessarily connected my faith doesn't have to do the works you do. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. That's it. That's, you see why there's so much disagreement and trying to figure out, you, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. How do we know what that means? Well, because of what James has been talking about and what he's going to talk about next. The man is trying to drive a wedge between faith and works by saying there's no necessary connection between faith and works, and he's saying that faith and works are two separate categories. That's the reaction, or that's the objection, and it's a defensive reaction. Of course, we never do that, right? 
Like we never try to excuse or justify our failures by not wanting to listen to someone who wants to tell us what we do, right? I mean, you ever tried to talk to somebody who's walked with God for a long time, but they're hell-bent on doing something that God says is wrong, and when you try to correct them, they get defensive and they say something like, don't tell me what I have to do. Don't question my faith if I don't do what you tell me to do. You ever, have you ever heard that? I mean, I have over and over and over again. That's what's going on here. So James sets up this argument with a man who says there's no direct connection between what we believe and what we do. He says faith is faith and works are works. One doesn't prove the other. Verse 18 again, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Now James says, okay, show me, show me your faith apart from your works, which is impossible, and I'll show you my faith by my works. This verse makes sense of verse 18. James is saying there's no way you can show me your faith if you don't put your faith into action, but I can show you my faith through my faithful actions. And then he says, you believe in one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, demons believe in God and they're scared to death of him, but that doesn't mean anything because their belief never expresses itself in faithfulness to God. Now, by the way, in my growing up years, this verse was used by preachers and evangelists and youth evangelists and even myself to question the genuineness of a person's faith. In other words, if you're not living a committed Christian life, if, you're not, if you are committing this list of sins, then you got demon faith, demon faith, I tell you. You were never saved to start with, and you better straighten up and get saved and start living in obedience to the commands of God. And that scared the living Bee Gees out of me. I just wanted to stay alive. I know it's Bee Jesus, but I didn't want to say that. I actually took a lot of pleasure in writing that sentence down. I mean, if, think about it. If you've got demon faith, who are you going to be spending, spending eternity with? Demons. And you tell me that, and I'll be the first one down the aisle. I'll be the first one to throw my stick on the fire. I don't want demon faith. I want the real thing. And man, I tell you, that'll keep you awake at night. And for many of us who grew up in the church, these two verses were used to make you feel guilty and to get you to pray the sinner's prayer over and over and over again. And these verses were used by someone to make you doubt your salvation because you weren't doing what they said you should be doing. And so they told you that you were probably never saved to start with. Again, is that possible? Of course it's possible. Yes, just because a person walked an aisle, just because a person threw a stick on the fire, that doesn't mean anything. It, it doesn't mean that you trusted Christ to save you from your sins. You trusted Christ that he rose from the dead to give eternal life. It's possible. It's, it is possible that you were never saved to start with. And as a result, though, Trying to make sense of what James is saying, faith and works, we can't seem to get believing and doing to connect without feeling that we're walking away from grace on the one hand, or we connect believing and doing in a way that makes people doubt their salvation. So grace-based people object that faith and works aren't connected, 
And legalistic people say they're so connected that if you don't have certain works, then you never had faith to start with. And we missed it. Of course, James agrees with Paul that faith alone saves you eternally. But James is saying faith alone will not save you temporally from the potential negative consequences of trials and temptations and sin. That's what this passage is about. Verse 20. And here's how James boils it down. He's saying it one more time. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's talking about showing faith. Not asking the question, is your faith real? Showing. Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works? So James says, listen, your, your objections are pure nonsense. To say that there's no essential connection between faith and works is absurd. You foolish person, can you not see that if you don't pay attention to what God tells you to do, then your life and your relationships and your finances and your reputation, your soul will suffer loss. Don't you see that God won't save you from your own foolishness? He probably will discipline you for not paying attention to what he says. He won't save you from your uh, lust. He won't save you from the consequences of your sin if you refuse to put your faith into action in the midst of trials and troubles of this life by doing what he tells you to do. And to drive home this point, James concludes this argument by giving two biblical examples of two people who put their faith into action in intense times. First, he looks at Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, and nobody questioned the faith of Abraham, even though if you know the stories of Abraham, you know that Abraham didn't always act in faith. But he was credited righteousness, and then sometime he, and so he became a man of faith, but then sometimes he didn't act in faith. Did that mean his first faith, his initial faith was not real? No, it just simply means he didn't act in faith and he suffered loss as a result of those times. But every Jew could point to one time when Abraham's faith really shined. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active with his works and as a result of works, his faith was perfected. The faith that he had was perfected by how he acted in faith, which is why God allows trials to come into our life, right? To perfect our faith, chapter one, verse four. Again, this is not about eternal salvation. It's about acting in faith in the midst of trials, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, and Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called, here's the blessing, he was called the friend of God because he acted in faith. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. <laughs> it's like, what? Justified by works and not by, you understand why Martin Luther just couldn't see James being in the canon? I mean, that last sentence, if you've been around the church for a while, you cringe, that statement sounds like heresy. But here again, James uses the word justified differently than the way Paul uses the word. Actually, the word justify has two meanings. Legally, justified means to declare righteous, to declare not guilty. Practically, it means to demonstrate righteousness in observable ways. In the Hebrew, a righteous man is a man who lives right with God and right with other people. Right with God, there's actions involved in that. Right with other people, there's 
faith actions involved in that. So Paul uses the word justify in the legal sense to say that we are justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone. Justified before God, legal sense. Romans 3.28 makes that plain, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul is absolutely talking about how keeping the law will never make you right with God. So Paul uses the word justified to say before God, we are declared righteous based on what Jesus has done for us. James doesn't use the word that way. He uses the practical sense of the word justify. James uses the word justify in the practical sense to say that we show our faith before people when we act in faith. Faith alone saves us eternally, but faith alone will not save us temporally. It will not save us in the times of trial and temptation and testing. Warren Wiersbe says it best. He puts it this way. He says, by faith, Abraham was justified before God and his righteousness declared by works he was justified before men and his righteousness demonstrated. Can't be any clearer than that. And that's what James is saying. Now think about it. Why do we hold Abraham in such high regard? Why is he such an example of faith? What shows us his faith? It's because we see we see his faith in action when, he, uh, when God told Abraham to offer up on the mountain his only son as a sacrifice on the altar. We see Abraham trusted God so much that he went up that mountain with a knife in his hand and he built an altar and he bound up his son and he laid Isaac on that altar. And Abraham believed so strongly in God's promise to make a nation out of his son Isaac that he actually believed that if he killed, if he put that knife in his son, that God would raise him from the dead to make good on his promise. Isn't that why his faith amazes us? Not just his faith, but he acted in faith. And when we think about Abraham, what amazes us is not just what he believed about God, that he turned from being a moon-worshiping pagan to, uh, to trusting, the God, uh, trusting Yahweh as his God. It's not just that, but his faith worked itself out. Faith in God's promises worked itself out in visible, tangible actions. Verse 24, you see then that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, if you don't understand, if you take justified to mean declared right before God and this is all about eternal salvation, you got to do all kinds of exegetical gymnastics to make all this work out. And it's just not that hard to, to understand. Now, James gives us a second example of a person whose works uh, justified or demonstrated their faith. And this person is on the very opposite end of the righteousness spectrum from Abraham. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So when the nation of Israel was ready to go into the promised land, one of the first cities they had to defeat was Jericho. And so they sent spies into the city to scout out the territory. And there was a prostitute living in Jericho named Rahab. And Rahab had come to believe that the God of Israel was the one true and living God, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was the one true and living God. So she believed that. So what did she do? She helped the spies by hiding them, and then she helped them escape. 
And here's what she asked the spies in return. Joshua chapter 2, verse 12. Please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sister and all who belong to them. And listen, listen, listen. And deliver our lives from death. She didn't say, and make sure I can go to heaven when I die. She's talking about being delivered in the trial. So in a moment of intense trial, her act of faith not only saved the spies, but it saved her and her family. Why? Because she believed God and acted in faith. And James says, that's my point. In the trials and tests and temptations of life, the only thing that will save you and preserve you and protect you is a faith that works, a living faith. In verse 26, he reiterates his main point, sums it all up. For just as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, lifeless faith. Just like a fish uh, without, with no animating spirit is dead and lifeless. <sighs> All right. I know. I'm, I, I, I can always, I, I hear what you're saying. Like some of you are going, Charlie, my mind is about to explode. Can you just not boil this down? Can you give me some kind of illustration of what James is talking about and what you're talking about? Yeah, I think I can do that. Uh, George Sweeting was the past president of Moody Bible Institute, and he told this story in a letter to one of his friends. He said, recently, one of our students, I'll call him John, was returning to the campus from a nearby YMCA where he had been playing basketball. He was wearing his gym clothes and his warm-up suit and carried his street clothes and his street shoes under his arm. As he hurried down the street, a poorly dressed man stopped him and asked him for money. John asked him why he needed the money, and the man said he was hungry. So John invited the man to join him for a hamburger at a nearby restaurant. And as they ate together, John noticed the tattered and torn clothes he was wearing and his worn-out street shoes. So John gave him his clothes and his shoes. And John also shared the way of salvation with the man and told him how through Jesus he could have eternal life. And they prayed together. And after a while, John left to return to campus. But as he left the restaurant, John was stopped again. This time by an elderly woman standing outside the restaurant waiting for the bus. And she had been watching John inside the restaurant. And she asked him, why did you help that man? Nobody does that kind of thing anymore. And John began to share his testimony with her. And they were so busy talking that the woman missed her bus, so John offered to carry her shopping bags and take her a few blocks away to another bus stop where she wouldn't have to wait as long. And as they talked and talked, the woman was so moved by what she had seen and heard she told John that she would like to become a Christian. So before she got on the bus, she prayed with John and trusted Christ as her Savior. That's exactly the kind of thing that James wants his readers to do. This is not some big theological discussion for James. This is practical. 
He wants, he's saying, that's the kind of faith I'm encouraging you to have, a living and active faith. John put his faith into visible, tangible actions, and it showed other people that what he believed was real. When he acted in faith, he justified his faith in their eyes, and it made them want what he had. What impact do you think all this had on John? (laughs) I think he was walking on clouds, right? He experienced the blessing of God. Joy and enthusiasm and energy and excitement and thankfulness that God used him in such a powerful way because his faith worked its way out of his life and into the life of another person, other people. All right, now think about this. Could John have made the choice not to help those people? Could he have made that choice? Two of you say yes. He could have made the choice not to help other people. If he didn't help them, would that mean his faith wasn't real? Would it mean that he had fake faith? Would it mean that he had demon faith? And he was never saved to start with. No. But it would mean that he missed an incredible blessing of being used by God to make an eternal difference in those two people's lives. And it also means that those two people would have not been blessed by his acts of kindness and mercy. Do you see, you can say that you have faith in Christ You can say that you're a follower of Jesus, and maybe that's really true. But how would anybody watching you know that you have faith unless they see you putting your faith into action? James says to us, if you want to experience the abundant life that Jesus died to make possible, it's not just what you believe that matters. It's what you do with what you believe that makes a difference in your life and in the lives of other people. Father God, thank you so much for your word and how practical it is. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would take these words from James and implant them deep, 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 in the center of our souls and who we are. And Holy Spirit, use these words to make us more like Jesus, to transform our minds, renew our minds, transform our hearts and renew our hearts so that we just don't go around talking about what we believe all the time, but we actually do something with what we believe. The world We live in a dark, dark world. And a lot of people, we start down the road of telling them about what we believe. Their minds are already closed. But God, I pray that you would empower us and empower this church and in this community and upstate. I pray that we would live out our faith in a way that would cause some people to see that there's something real and authentic in 
and what it means to follow, be a faithful follower to Jesus. And I ask this in his name. Amen.